This is the global edition of the Business Disability Forum podcast. Who are we? The people behind the job title. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Business Disability Forum podcast. At Business Disability Forum, our mission is to help transform the life chances of people with disabilities by making it easier for organizations to recruit and retain disabled employees and to serve disabled customers. The theme of this series is identity, and over the next four episodes, we'll be exploring the topic through conversations with people with disabilities and long-term conditions who work internationally and have a global impact. My guest today is Daniel Proust. Daniel's career in the British diplomatic service spans 30 years. It has included acting as the British government's spokesperson at the European Union and working in the Prime Minister's press office, where between 2002 and 2004, Daniel was responsible for briefing journalists and accompanying the then Prime Minister Tony Blair on his overseas visits. Daniel has served as the Deputy Head of Mission at the British embassies in both Bangkok and Madrid. It was during his time in Bangkok that Daniel was diagnosed with epilepsy. In 2017, Daniel was appointed as the UK's ambassador to the Philippines, which is where he's joining us from now. So hi, Dan, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Uh, My pleasure, Brennan. It's great to be in touch again. The theme of this series is all about identity and we've been using the subtitle, the person behind the job title as a hook. So I think you have one of the more interesting job titles out there. So I'm sure many of our listeners might think they have an idea of what an ambassador does, but wondered if you could uh, explain to us what, what your role involves. First and foremost, my job here is to be the British government's senior representative in the Philippines. As a result of that, uh, to manage the totality of our relationship with with the Philippines. That includes the government, but it also includes all branches of the, the agencies and departments that make up the constitutional framework and institutional framework of this country. Civil society, business, media, everyone really. I think part of my job is to be in touch with anyone and everyone and speak to anyone and everyone, regardless of their perspective, their political affiliation, their proximity or distance in the UK, is to be you know, someone who speaks to the full range of, of opinion and activity across, across the country. So the sorts of things that we do in this embassy include developing the trade investment relationship between the UK and the Philippines, which is, which is healthy and, and getting healthier. We have a growing partnership on security and defense issues, including uh, some uh, increasingly important work around counterterrorism. We have an active consular team here. The, the Philippines is becoming a more popular holiday destination for British nationals, and we have a British community that, that's permanently resident here, about 17,000 people. We work with the Philippines on the big global issues as well, such as uh, climate change, which you know, no country can tackle on its own. And we are very active here on a whole set of issues relating to to values and principles. So whether that's questions of uh, inclusion in society, uh, whether that's the defense of human rights, uh, whether that's ensuring the proper application of the rule of law. We have lots of uh, projects and programs in place which uh, support that side of our foreign policy global activity as well. Thank you. Having spent some time with you and your team in in Madrid and listening to you speak, I think I I was certainly surprised at the broad range of programs and activities that you and your your team are involved in. So you've been in the Philippines since August 2017. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more for maybe some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with that part of the world, what it's like in in the Philippines. It's a fascinating Southeast Asian country composed of over 7,000 islands, which creates its own challenges in terms of connectivity and, and 
infrastructure. It's also in a part of the world that's vulnerable to extreme weather. So when typhoon season comes, that can have a very significant impact on both at a personal level, there are you know, many personal tragedies when floods or winds come. And also, again, it disrupts the, the operation of the country, bridges collapse, roads fall down. There's also, as I say, a risk of, of, sort of seismic instability as well. But in a country of over 100 million people, it's a young country, median age of 23, a dynamic expanding economy, so 6.2% growth estimated for, for this year, and a country which is increasingly looking to build its network of uh, global partnerships. In the UK, we are fortunate in that we already have a very sizable Philippine you know, community, about a quarter of a million Filipinos work in the United Kingdom and make an enormous contribution to our, our country and our society. And growing numbers are coming for holiday, so we're the leading European destination for Filipinos. United Kingdom is, is you know, very firmly on the, on the tourism map here in, in the Philippines. And yes, I, I mean, what's particularly exciting for me as well, something where the embassy is doing a lot of work is fostering greater links in our educational sector as well. So we have growing numbers of Filipino universities working with British universities, delivering joint degrees. We, as an embassy, are sending growing numbers of uh, scholars to the UK under the government's Chevening Scholarship Programme to spend a year studying there at postgraduate level. So we sent 36 last year, which is our biggest number ever. The people-to-people links are, are strong. And coming back to my previous answer, the potential for us to do more across these areas of policy and trade and investment is increasing. Of course, you know, there are areas where we take a different perspective to the governments of the Philippines. And we have a relationship which is sufficiently strong. We can have those conversations. We can discuss those differences of view in a, in a way that is, that is open and honest. And again, you know, that's part of my role here is to do that and to do that diligently, conscientiously, but, but, and clearly. So just listening to you talking about some of those kind of touch points in, in terms of our, our, our relationships with the Philippines and thinking about the lens through which I view the world through the work that I do in terms of disability. One of the things about disabilities, it impacts on so many aspects of our life. And you're talking about tourism and humanitarian and disaster relief and education. So all of those things clearly will have an impact on disabled people in terms of the way that those aspects are, are delivered. So I think that's really interesting, probably part of a, a much broader conversation. But just on that topic of disability, I just wondered, as I'd mentioned in the introduction, that you were diagnosed with with epilepsy during your your working career, during your time in the embassy in Bangkok. I wonder if you'd mind telling us a little bit about about how you received that diagnosis. I had completely unexpectedly a seizure in the middle of 2011, uh, which was a strong seizure. It put me in hospital for a month. I'd suffered quite a bit of damage to my spine. And at that stage... Uh, the, the medical care I received, which you know, was was excellent. I wasn't sure if this was a condition or if it was just a, a one-off. As a precaution, when I was discharged from hospital, I was put on some medication. You know, advised to make a few sort of lifestyle changes, getting better night's sleep and a, a better balanced diet and a better sort of work-life balance. But with the expectation that it was just one of those things, it was a one-off and and wouldn't happen again, and in time I'd come off the medication. But then about six months later, I had a a second seizure, which which again was a a strong one, a a tonic-clonic seizure. Again, I ended up in hospital for a few days this time, the the physical damage was less. But as a result of that, I came under the care of the 
neurological hospital at Queen Square, London, who pretty quickly concluded that this was epilepsy, uh, that it needed to be treated as such, as, a, as an ongoing chronic condition. And we sort of continued the search to find a medication that would probably control the seizures. It's interesting, your, your question about the impacts, I suppose my reaction sort of fell into two broad categories. On the one hand, the practical questions around you know, how do you deal with the immediate consequences of the condition? So first and foremost, it's trying to find a, a set of arrangements which will stop the seizures from happening. So in my case, that was finding the medication, which worked for me. And you know, after about three attempts, I think we, we found something which, which you know, I still take, and which on the whole, touching wood, seems to work. Alongside that, there's the, the practical measures that aren't medicine, but they're also important. So again, being really careful around getting decent sleep, having a proper diet, having reasonable exercise, avoiding situations which are going to sort of stimulate an excessive electrical activity in the brain. So it's trying to get that balance right. And, and again, that's, that's important. And you've got to work at it to, to find a, an approach that works for you. But all of those sort of practical things, in some ways, were easier to deal with than the, the second category of impacts, which was around sort of me emotionally, what this change in my circumstances meant for me as a person, both professionally and, and in my private life. And that was more of a journey, because suddenly... I had a significant unavoidable part of my makeup, which not only had I previously been unaware of, but which wasn't particularly welcome either. So I, you know, I went through a period where I was sort of weighing up, you know, how open should I be about this? How much uh, acknowledgement should I give it in, in my day-to-day -day life? And you know, how, how should I present it in a way which I felt comfortable with? And that, you know, that took time, actually, and it, it took longer to sort that out than it did to sort out the, the practical measures. And, and, you know, I sort of came to my own point eventually, but, you know, I, I'm sure for every person, the journey is, is, a, is a different one, is a personal one. What kind of assumptions were you making at that point about how other people might react? One of the things I discovered during this period was that I had my own set of prejudices and assumptions about how other people might react, which reflected on me, didn't, didn't reflect on them. And would people be worried? Would they be scared? Would they think the less of me? All of these sort of uh, illogical, but nevertheless real questions that come into your mind. And, you know, eventually the only conclusion I felt I could come to was that I, you know, I couldn't control what people thought or felt or how they reacted. And if I tried to manage my openness about my circumstances in the hope that I could manage people's reactions, then that would be a, a slippery slope to nowhere. So, I mean, in the end, my approach, but again, doesn't necessarily work for everyone, but my approach was to be open about my condition, to find the right moment and opportunity to tell people my story, give them a sense of what it meant for me day to day at a practical level, explain to them what that meant in terms of my daily rhythm at work and the sorts of things I would or wouldn't do and particularly in, in this role as a as an ambassador where traditionally there's there's quite a bit of out of hours working and there can be a lot of work at weekends so do my bit of that but I manage it carefully and I'm I explain to people why I'm doing that and people get it people understand it and they accept it and they they work with that but it's it takes a conscious effort and 
it does feel a bit awkward and uncomfortable at first, but as you go through the, the weeks and the months and the years, it gets to a point where people just, they just know that that's part of your circumstances. It's, it's like knowing that you've got blue eyes or red hair or it's, it's like another characteristic. So I, I hope that it's just a sort of a natural part of who I am and is, is recognized as such. And yeah, I mean, okay, if people, if people feel uncomfortable about it, if people have a, a negative reaction about it, then that's, that's for them to deal with. It's, it's not something which I can seek to manage away by being less open about my circumstances. I, in preparing for our conversation, I came across a blog that you had written a, a few years ago, and you used a phrase there that really sort of jumped out at me, which was, I think you had said that authenticity is the key to successful diplomacy. And I thought it was really interesting to link your uh, decision to be open about your your health condition to actually a, a really key sort of tenant of your of your job. So I wondered if you could sort of expand on that and whether you do see sort of any links in terms of your own personal journey and the way that you've approached your work. I mean, my my sense is in this job and, and this consideration won't, won't be unique to this job. A lot of what I do is based around people's perceptions of me as being uh, an honest, trustworthy, credible person to to do business with, mm. and. I came to the conclusion that I couldn't be authentic in that way if this significant chunk of my life, the fact of having epilepsy, I, I sometimes try, somehow try to sort of tuck away and not refer to. I just couldn't work. Even though the authenticity as it relates to my job encompasses a whole different set of issues and concerns which are not relevant to epilepsy. Not being open about epilepsy would, would not allow me to get into that space. And also a personal level, you know, it feels better. It, it takes, in another context, I remember seeing a quotation that it takes a lot of effort and stress and anxiety and worry to keep something secret in your daily life, you know, whatever it is. Well, whatever it is. And I didn't want to be in a situation where I was putting massive amounts of my energy and emotion into not being open about this thing. A, because it's sucking up energy that could be used more productively. And B, because I think would undoubtedly have been a block. You know, you can't look someone in the eye and be straight with them about climate change if I felt I couldn't, if I knew that there was this person with whom I was trying to build a relationship of trust, there was an important part of my life that I wasn't being open about. That's not to say that epilepsy is my first topic of conversation. You know, it's not, it's not my social chit-chat, but equally it's, it's not something that I shrink from discussing it's not something which I try to protect myself or other people from. A small example of that, in this job, a lot of your work is in a social situation, quite often over a, a drink, glass of wine, glass of beer, whatever. Now, I don't drink at all because the medication I take doesn't mix well with alcohol, so I, I just don't touch alcohol at all. But obviously, when, when the bottle of wine is being poured or the, the beers are being got in and I say no thanks just a fizzy water or lemonade for me people comment on that they ask about it that's a situation where I won't I won't sort of shrink back and come up with another excuse I'll tell them this is the reason why I don't drink 99% of the time people's reaction is completely matter of fact uncontroversial sometimes they ask a bit more about the the circumstances but I think it, it's just important it was important for me to just be straight about that and open about it, that enabled 
me, I think. And again, this is a personal experience. It's not something which is a template for everyone, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it just enabled me to have that as, the, as an issue that would not then get in the way or impede me from being open, credible, trustworthy, honest in all the other things that I have to do in this job. One of the things that strikes me about that example, that's clearly a situation that you will find yourself in quite frequently in terms of the social aspect of, of the way that, that you have to work. So having that kind of that story easily reachable and in a form of words that you know won't you won't have to expend any energy to put together um, sounds like it could be quite a useful thing. So I wanted to ask you about the way that you came to have your story so well crafted. I've heard you a couple of times now. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the process of of getting your story to the point at which you can tell it in this way that's kind of engaging and you've clearly identified what it, are the relevant pieces of information that people know. So I wonder if that was a deliberate act, whether that was a process and whether you see any value in anyone with a health condition kind of working through that process. Again, that's a really good question. and I've got no, no expertise in any of this beyond my own experience. And I suppose for me, it was just, in some ways, it, it just comes through practice, just through being in the situation where once you've taken that decision, I'm going to be open with people about this, then you naturally find yourself in circumstances where you are being open. And just through force of repetition, you get to the point where you're not, I don't think, I wouldn't say I've self-consciously honed my narrative. I'm not saying you're suggesting that, Brenda, but it's not been a sort of deliberate act, but it's just through, through the fact of having conversations and repetition and and understanding from other people the sorts of questions they have and the points that interest them, you just kind of naturally develop an ability to describe your circumstances in terms that others can understand and, and be ready for the sorts of questions that people ask. And ultimately, I suppose the bottom line is you just be guided by your personal experience. I think I probably just tell people the sequence of events I went through and and we've kind of done that in this conversation. And you, you just you start at that point and then follow the conversation through in whichever direction it takes you. I suppose, what, I mean, one thing I am self-consciously very mindful of is the fact that everyone's experience is different. And some of the conversations that we've had at BEF events, some of the conversations I've had with, with colleagues in the, in the Foreign Office that have disabilities, reinforces that sense that every person deals with their life circumstances differently and there's no single model there's no single approach which works for everyone we all we all tackle things in our own way so i think that that is something which i'm mindful of and you know i wouldn't presume to put myself in a position where i appear to be saying this is the way to do it this is nothing more than my own personal experience and if that's interesting or helpful to others then that's great but if it's not then that that's also fine we're, we're all different we all tackle things in different ways one of the elements that are dropped by your story and the way that you tell it that might be interesting and, and helpful to others is so not just your openness which i think is really important but also the fact that your position in the in the organization that you work for so you're a senior leader within the foreign and, and commonwealth office and i was thinking about uh, some research that was out recently by one of our partners ey um, who had done some research with c-suite level executives and they had found that one in five c-suite leaders with a disability had said that they do not feel comfortable sharing information about their disability or their health condition with colleagues. So I just wondered, from your position as a senior leader, you know, what do you think stops 
senior leaders from speaking openly about their own disability? Is it different to people who are maybe more junior? And what do you think might encourage more leaders to be open? And obviously, I've used the example of C-suite leaders, so there's a private sector uh, element there. But if you have examples, I mean, there's been lots of really interesting stuff about heads of state, um, you know, who've managed health conditions that haven't been known by the public as well. So any examples or, or thoughts on that would be really interested. You know, one of the considerations that comes into play when you are in a more senior position in an organization or in public life is every aspect of your life is more visible and more exposed. And I can imagine that therefore the, the sort of the equity that you have in protecting yourself on that much broader landscape, that much bigger canvas, for some people, the calculation means that that equity is too great to, to jeopardize. So in some, some respects, not saying I agree with this, but in some respects, I can see that, you know, as you become more senior, the balance of the argument may push people against being quite as open. Personally, I think that's a, while I'd understand that, I think it, it's striking how when somebody who is in a position where they can attract the attention of a, of a number of people, whether it's dozens or hundreds or millions, that gives them enormous influence and potential to be a sort of positive force. And talking about your personal circumstances, in whatever terms you choose to do so, I think can make a great difference to people who hear what you're saying, who perhaps are going through something similar, or who can empathize with it, or it can help improve their understanding of the situation. And it, it can also motivate others as well so i mean again an example and i don't hold this up as as best practice but when i was in madrid there was a local version of uh, the ted talk program of tedx madrid which they, they kindly invited me along one day and i did a sort of 10 minute talk about my experience and that went on youtube many many years ago and about three people looked at it for the first four years or however many years it was but then it through no particular reason it picked up a bit of visibility and i, I haven't I don't know, but, you know, several thousands have now looked at it. I mean, still tiny in YouTube terms, but more people than I reached in that room. I mean, it's interesting some of the comments that come in, which on the whole are welcoming the fact of being sort of open and honest about the circumstances that I was going through at the time and, and I'm still living. So there is, I'm not suggesting for a second that people should feel obligation to be open about their personal circumstances. But I think where people feel able to share those details, it can have a very positive impact. It's not so much about inspiring others, not at all. It could just encourage other people to, to consider things differently, to consider their own circumstances differently as well, in a positive way. I think there's also there's a harsh reality that organizations remain competitive. Perhaps the more senior you're becoming an organization, the more keenly you feel that competitiveness. And it's just a fact. Being open about a condition or a set of circumstances which could be perceived as a, a quote-unquote weakness within that organization, people might be concerned that that will damage their career prospects or their competitiveness amongst their peers. Now, absolutely, that shouldn't be the case. And BDF work hard to dismantle that sort of culture where it exists in organizations and within the FCO 
many of my colleagues with a bit of help from me are, are also sort of working in that sort of area and across the public and private sector that work goes on. But the harsh reality remains that there is, again, a, a judgment that people have to make. And I think it's particularly acute as you get into more senior positions around the nature of the professional environment you're working within as well. I think you're right in terms of there's still a reality. That's really interesting in terms of that balance, but then also, like the, I guess, the impact of, of sharing if you do take that decision becomes greater with the greater level of visibility that you have and you mentioned the TED talk and we can certainly provide a link with that and when we put the podcast out and I would encourage people to to look at it but I think you know I've spent time with you lucky enough to do that when you were in Madrid and I think it was tangible you could you notice it talking to colleagues they felt that they were in an environment where they could be open about their own whether it's health conditions or any aspect of their lives and I think your leadership sets the tone there and I think that power of, of, of openness at, at that level so we've spoken a lot about individuals and I'm conscious of time so I won't ask you too many more questions Dan but I just wondered if we could kind of zoom out a little bit what about organizations so you're a leader of, of, of an organization an organization within an organization I guess in terms of the the, the embassy and, and the FCO so I wondered firstly what you thought about the kind of competencies and behaviors and things that an organization needs to to do to be more inclusive and welcoming of people with disabilities but then you work for for a really interesting organization, a global organization. We have about 50% of our members are, are global. And I wondered if there was anything specific about the potential of global organizations that struck you as having potential to make a particular kind of impact for people around the world with disabilities. I mean, on, on the second question first, I, I, I thought it was brilliant that last year, the Department for International Development hosted the first global disability summit in the UK, which Secretary of State for International Development uh, chaired. And I thought, viewed from here, because I was in Manila by then, we sent a couple of delegates from the Philippines to attend. And I thought that was a very powerful way of illustrating just how tough it is in some parts of the world for people with even I mean, for want of a better word, even with sort of relatively minor conditions that could be managed successfully in a different social context, because of the society in which they find themselves, they're real impediments to having a fulfilling and integrated life. So I think the global picture for people with disabilities still remains, there are great peaks and troughs in it. The, the summit I thought last summer highlighted that very vividly and also reinforced how some relatively modest interventions could have very striking, life-changing effects for, for people in many, many parts of the world. And I think it's part of the, the government's continuing ambition on the light of that summit to support both through our own programs, but through multilateral organizations, helping countries make those changes and giving them the support where they need that. In terms of behaviors within specific organizations, I think and I'll just use the embassy here as an example, perhaps, to illustrate my sort of train of thought on that. So we put quite a lot of work over the past year or so into developing a very clear statement of values in this organization. In total, we're about 230 people, quite a diverse embassy of folk working in different teams from different departments. And I was keen for us to have a clear sense of identity and a clear sense of what we stood for. So we've developed four values, which are collaboration, opportunity, respect, and excellence. So C-O-R-E, our core values. It's slightly corny, but it works, and people, people remember that. But what's interesting, and that the phase that we're going through now, is a year or so down the track, is taking those, those fine words on the piece of paper and turning them into practical things which shape the decisions that people are taking every day in their dealings with their colleagues, 
in the management decisions they're taking, in the way they manage their finances and their resources. Because that's where the values bite. That's where you really deliver change. That's not easy because it, it involves much more commitment and determination. It has much more of an effect than just signing up to a statement. But I think it, you can achieve a lot just through the, sort of the small, imperceptible day-to-day -day decisions that, that people take. If you've got a sort of clear point of reference in a value statement or a strong set of principles or a mission, whatever, whatever the organization calls them. So, I mean, one, one small thing that we did here when we had that sort of sense of values in mind is we were in the midst of a program to refurbish the, the residence, the ambassador's residence, just a nice big house, but it needed some structural work. We thought while it's sort of given over to being a building site for the best part of a year, what can we do to make this house sort of reflect the values that we think are important? And we worked with the contractor at some length on that. And we did a couple of things to try to, to bring those values alive and very simple things, but they've made a difference. So, for example, we replaced the steps at the front entrance of the house with a slope and a handrail. We redesigned the toilets so that we now have a, an accessible toilet in the house, which we never had before. And we installed a temporary ramp so that someone with mobility issues can get from the back of the house out into the garden. So three very simple, very practical things, which I don't think... We wouldn't have done them had we not sort of challenged ourselves to think how could the physical fabric of this building reflect our values. And now that we've done them, it's striking how everyone just takes them for granted and it's not considered remarkable at all. But the practical difference it makes is great. So we've had a number of occasions where guests who wouldn't otherwise have been able to come to the residence, who wouldn't have been able to take part in the discussions, the events, the activities there because of their circumstances are now able to do so completely easily and it's just, it completely removes the issue as an issue. Again, I think it comes back to these small incremental decisions that you can take day to day, which are rooted in a clear sense of the values that underpin your operation. And ultimately that comes down to the behaviors that we adopt as managers and decision takers. A really practical insight of, I mean, like this question of how do you turn values into sort of practical outcomes, tangible things that people have feel on the ground. I think that's a really, a really tangible insight and kind of quite an interesting insight also into your life as an ambassador with your residents as well. So I think interesting images for our, our listeners to consider in terms of your new accessible abode. So Dan, look, I'm looking at the time now and I know you're really, really busy. And I think that might be a, a, a good time to leave it. But just one, one last question for you. I know you're very, you're very active on social media and I'm sure many of our audience uh, and our listeners now will want to follow you and kind of get a bit more insight into your activities and your life at work in the Philippines. So where can people find you? Thank you for that, Brendan. So I'm on Twitter, at Daniel Proust is my, is my Twitter handle. And that's, that's where I try to engage in, a, in, a, in an entertaining but also a meaningful way uh, on social media. I mean, the embassy is, is also active there and on Facebook, so UK and the Philippines. As you, you mentioned, the, the YouTube video is, is still there and a link to that provides a snapshot of where I was. Gosh, I mean, it must be five years ago now, maybe. And yeah, I think still, although I'm some distance away from the UK now, I still follow with great interest the work the BDF is doing. Still very much in touch with many of the partners that you work with closely. And the Foreign Office as an organization still has a very active staff association, Enable, which is doing great work championing many of the considerations that we've discussed. We've got a, a number of senior colleagues who also have a particular role in support of that. 
I try to connect both virtually and in person with this really important area of activity, even though I'm, say, here in Southeast Asia. And it's great to have the opportunity, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about these things today as well. And I'm grateful to you for being in touch because I think this is also, a conversation like this is also part of my continuing journey. And the thought processes you go through is uh, consider the things that we've discussed and the ideas that come into your head, which you do your best to articulate. That's all part of the process. It's all part of continuing to talk about circumstances, talk about the challenges, and also talk about the opportunities there are, both at a personal level, but also for, for organizations and, and, and globally, as we've discussed, to, to make a positive difference. Well, look, I'm glad you found it a useful experience as well. It's certainly been uh, useful and interesting for me, and I'm sure the rest of our listeners as well. So Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love to hear what you think. So please like and review the show. You can subscribe by finding us on platforms such as SoundCloud, Acast, iTunes. You just need to search for us using the words business and disability forum.